Hello and welcome to Playback Daily for Monday the 26th of February. I'm Louise Herity and here's some of what's coming up. I love it but I don't take it for granted because I know full well that you know somebody could come in tomorrow and say I want to change the cushions and the colour of the chairs and the presenters. I mean it's not a guaranteed job for life, anything but. Yeah. So at the time similar to what's happening now it's about the attitude towards people who do hard drugs and find themselves homeless and then the people that do what are called party drugs. It's really, really, really tricky, Claire, and it's a panic, like parents feel a panic, because I couldn't get my son in for months and months. I'd go down, and every time I went down, I'd try and ring, all the spots would be taken up. Eventually, I got him in, right? Well, we'll start with something from yesterday morning on Radio 1 and on Sunday with Miriam. The host was joined by TV presenter and now author Lorraine Kelly, who spoke about her debut novel set in the Orkney Islands, The Island Swimmer. And look, there's a great cast of characters in your book. Give my listeners an idea of Evie's story. She's from Orkney, but she's been in exile, hasn't she, in London for a long time? Yeah, yeah. She has to leave. She has to leave Orkney when she's quite young. You know, she's still a teenager in her late teens. And you find out why she has to leave. It's kind of teased throughout the first half of the book. You find out why she has to go. It's pretty traumatic. In fact, very traumatic. And she cuts ties with, with everyone apart from her friend, Freya, who's an older woman, who's who's a lovely woman. She's the wise woman in the kind of heart of the, the, the community, really. But Evie has to go. And because of what's happened and because it's been so traumatic, when she gets to London, she's very lonely. But she doesn't feel she deserves happiness or contentment even or a good relationship or a decent life, you know. So mm. she has a pretty she has a pretty bad time. She kind of she kind of shrinks. You know, you find that sometimes yeah. avid friends who've been in bad relationships and it's like they shrink. They they become smaller and smaller and smaller. Their confidence gets chipped away. So that happens to Evie, but then she has to go back and she has to reconnect with people. She has to go back because her, her beloved dad is, is very ill. So even though she, she hasn't had any contact with him, she feels she needs she's compelled to go back. And then that's where it gets very interesting because she has to rebuild these relationships because all the people she left behind remember her the way she was and she's not like that anymore. And all the way through, there's it's called the Island Swimmer. So all the way through, there's this group of women um, who are called the Selkies, which is Orcadian. A Selkie is like a half seal, half woman. It's a mythical figure. And the Selkies, well, they hold her up. You know, they help her. She's got a terrible fear of water, which you find out why. It makes perfect sense. Um, but it's whether or not is she actually going to get over that? Is she actually going to be that girl that she was can she find that girl that she was and then in amongst all of that there's lots of other things going on and um, lots of twists and turns along along the way um, but yeah it's really a story about relationships and, and how we get on with our mothers our, our fathers our sisters you know friends all, all of that and trying to heal really I think and you mentioned the swimming there. So mm. many people now, Lorraine, are into sea swimming. Yeah. Are you yeah. into sea swimming? Oh, yeah. I love it. I mean, I did it, believe it or not, the first time I went in, uh, sort of got they call cold water swimming, was very cold water. It was Antarctica. <laughs> I was in Antarctica on holiday. Um, it was like a pilgrimage to the Ernie Shackleton, who I absolutely adore. Mm. Um, and we were following his footsteps of that epic voyage that he did. And we had a chance to go to, to go into the water. Now, I went in and I came back out again after about 3.1 seconds. But I felt alive. I felt really zingy. And then when I went back, I, I I went swimming in Orkney and in some of the lochs up in Scotland. 
Also, I live pretty close to the Thames. I I wouldn't. The Thames is a kind of greeny brown, and no, you don't want to be going in there. Um, but yeah, I've certainly done it a few times, and it does make you feel better. You do feel alive, and it's the camaraderie. To be honest, the way, the swimming is great, but the best bit is coming out and having coffee with maybe a wee Bailey's in it and a great big giant cake that, and, and a chat. Because I don't know what it is about doing something like that, but you find out a little lot about your friends and, and, and the girls. that There are some boys as well, but it's mostly women that I swim with. Uh, and, and it's just something really, really good about that. You, you tend to share more. I don't know. It just breaks mm. down barriers somehow. It's really interesting. Why, Lorraine, and as we said earlier on, it's a bestseller already. Why did you decide to write a book? And also, were you nervous about writing it? Like you have an extremely successful television career. You've had it for decades. You still have your own show. You're at the top of your game. Were you worried about departing and doing something so different? Um, Yeah, I guess. I mean, it was it's always been something I've wanted to do. And I've never been able to do it because I've always thought that's a full time job. I can't do it. But when I put my mind to it, and I'd, I'd said in an interview that I really wanted to write a book, and then the publishers got in touch with me. And then when they told me that they published Maeve Binchy, who is my absolute mm. idol when it comes to writing stories. I mean, Maeve was the best in the business. I mean, she's, she was incredible. Um, and also, I love Marion Keyes. Mm. I like Kate Atkinson. You know, all of these incredibly strong women that managed to do it. I just basically was a hermit for a year. All last year, I didn't do anything but work and write. So I would do my job, make sure I did all my homework, you know, the same. I put the same amount of time into that that I always do because you've got to. But I, I, any spare minute of the day, I was writing. And sometimes when you start writing, you've got to you've got to keep going. But it's something that I, I really wanted to do. And it was a challenge. And I, honestly, I'm 65 this year and I wanted some challenges. But with a book, I just wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. Now, it's been amazing that it's it's been successful. I'm astonished but of course you don't do these things all by yourself you know when I was a hermit my husband was having to pick up the slack and do all the shopping and all the rest of it and all the you know the day-to-day stuff that we have to do you know he he really took more than his fair share as did my daughter although Rosie doesn't live with 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 us now you know she's nearly 30 she'll be 30 this year you know she really helped as well you know she would she was just really helpful and so yeah I had I had you know my family to help me as a great editor. So it was a joy to do. I loved every minute of it. And, and I really, I'm just so happy that people have found it and that, they, that they're enjoying the story because at the moment now, I'm just beginning to get feedback. And, and you know what? I've got unfinished business with these characters. I didn't want to say goodbye to them. I've got to write another one. Okay. I, I, I have to, because although the big issues are, are addressed at the end of the book, there's still some some ends that need tied up because that's life isn't it everything mm. isn't just wrapped up in a big bow oh and da 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 they lived happily ever after because nobody does great and I was thinking your TV work probably complemented your novel as well Lorraine because there are so. difficult conversations in the book about control yes. and relationships mm. mental health issues mm. sibling rivalry and their topics probably you understood better because you probably yes. covered them on your TV work that's such a great point and, and it's true I mean I think if I didn't do this job I don't think I would be able to be a writer to be honest with you and there's a lot of you know our show has a lot of 
light and a lot of fun and there's a lot of fun and jokes and silliness as well in the book because again that that's life but I think because I've talked to an awful lot of people and much much more importantly I've listened to an awful lot of people's stories people have been incredible to trust me with their stories you know especially when it's something you know that can be quite traumatic so yeah it was it was it was it was an interesting process and I honestly think that if I hadn't got that experience and amassed that experience that I don't know that I would have been able to do the book and as well as things like the editing process I get an awful lot of information about our guests and I've got to kind of dilute that um, and that was what the editing process was like as well when I was having to sort of just polish things but definitely you're so so right you're so right the, the, the job obviously helped a lot. Miriam also asked Lorraine, who has been on morning television for many years, what she thinks is the secret to her success. Oh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I do think it's because of the time of day and the kind of show that we do where you are allowed to be yourself. Um, except, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a much, much less sweary version of me that's on the telly. Um, but, yeah, I think it's that. I think people in the morning, they like familiarity and they, mm. they like that and you know and I have kind of grown up with people and it's that trust thing as well but just you know I love it but I don't take it for granted because I know so well that you know somebody could come in tomorrow and say I want to change the cushions and the colour of the chairs and the presenters I mean it's not a guaranteed job for life anything but so I suppose I've had the nearest thing to a kind of proper job, if you like, in telly for a long, long time. You know, I, I don't think there's that many people that have been doing it for this long. And that's a privilege. It really is. You know, I mean, it's a joy that every day we come in, we've got a blank slate and we sit and can work out what we're going to say, what we're going to do, what we're going to talk about, what we're going to focus on. And the great thing about what I do is we do do some pretty dark stuff, you know, some really serious issues, mm. but we do it in a different way to other shows. And, you know, we try and, like I say, we try and bring a bit of light and we've done campaigns, you know, on breast cancer, bowel cancer, all of these different campaigns. And that really touches mm. people a lot. And I've been going out talking about the book um, I've been going out to various different events and it's so lovely to get that feedback, you know, to people just to say, oh, thanks. And you're kind of like, I suppose people are watching you at that time in the morning. You're, you're like the pal, mm. which again, what an honour that is. You know, it's, it's, it's just wonderful. But I think the bottom line is I just love it. You know, I've got a great team. You're only as good as your team. Mm. Uh, some of them are very young and they keep me young with all the TikToks and all the rest of it. And, you know, we're keeping up to date with social media and all that malarkey and the new bands and new TV programmes and everything. It's it's great. It's a real sort of democracy here. Everybody's got a chance to throw in ideas and all of that. And it keeps you young. Keeps you young. And actually, before I let you go, you have a huge uh, Insta following, a very big following on social. And there are always mm. comments about your looks and how you look oh, so young for your age. So what's your secret? <laughs> My listeners are going to want oh, to know. Oh, gosh, I don't know. And I mean, social media is a very strange place. I think mm. Twitter has got terribly dark. I mean, I've had to. I don't block people because then they know that you've seen it. I just You mute can mute them. them. Yeah. Mute is the best thing because they don't know that you've seen it. They don't know that they're ranting in an empty <laughs> room. And I call them ants with megaphones. They are 
awful. And I'm fine. I'm a grown woman. You know, I'm, I'm nearly 65. I can dismiss it. But it worries me for young people, you know, young actresses or dancers or singers, entertainers, or indeed any young person that they're subjected to that because it's, it's really horrible. But really, I think, to be honest with you, it's nothing that I've done. I take after my mum. My mum's got the most beautiful skin and bone structure. And I do think, you know, my mum doesn't look 80 odds, even though she's not very well. She doesn't look, she doesn't look her age. And um, I think a lot of it is how you are inside. Mm. You know, you, you do sort of get the face you deserve. And sometimes, not always, yeah. but um, I think it's, I think it's, Partly, you know, of course you can slap on cream and all that sort of stuff and put highlights in your hair, which I do. Um, but I think it's more to do with what you're like inside and how content you are. I'm always I'm always sort of, uh, I don't always like to say happy because you can't be happy all the time. But you can be content and have mm. peace of mind. And that's terribly underrated. It's only when your peace of mind goes away that you realise how important it is. And that was TV presenter and author Lorraine Kelly on Sunday with Miriam. Wildlife Rescue Cork, which is based in Whitechurch, close to Blarney, is run in the back garden of Julie Cronin's home. The Cork-based sanctuary deals only with native Irish species, but they need more funding to deal with the huge increase of animals they're trying to rehabilitate back into the wild. And Brian O'Connell visited the charity for Today with Claire Byrne. Morning, Claire. Now, I know you're going to talk about the pet fox. We all want to hear about the pet fox. He's something of an anomaly, is he? Yeah, we just uh, tweeted uh, a little video of the pet fox because, I mean, really, the pet fox is a one-off. The idea with Wildlife Rescue Cork is that animals they rehabilitate should really be as afraid of humans when they leave as when they come in the door. So this isn't really about creating pets. It's about treating and helping species, many of whom have been injured or perhaps orphaned. And they'd be picked up by members of the public. Some are referred by vet uh, practices and once they're ready Julie Cronin and her team of volunteers send them back out into the wild. So Julie has worked with animals for many years. She's worked in South Africa for example and she really only deals uh, with native Irish wildlife so no reptiles, no exotic birds for example. Now I did get close to a quite a stunning bird of prey and of course I met the resident fox who won't leave. But first up Julie took me on a tour and introduced me to some feathered friends along the way. We built this um, thinking that this would be our forever home, that this would be sufficient um, and the need has just grown year on year and we are looking to try and move premises to try and go and lease an, a property. We are getting huge numbers in the door. And these are native Irish, so I'm not going to find reptiles here. No, you're not. No, no, just native Irish species. I can hear some animals in the background. Will we have a look at them? Yeah. So um, in some of these cages, we have two hedgehogs here. So one of them is on treatment at the minute and the other one is ready to go. So next door then we have two rooks side by side. We just don't have the space to keep disabled animals here. So there's one in West Cork now that she's going to take them on for me because um, she has an aviary with rooks um, so they'll just settle in there with mm -hmm. her. So we need everything to be afraid of humans when it's leaving here because otherwise it'll wander up to the wrong human. Oh, wow something I didn't expect <laughs> so we have so this is a structure here which we couldn't see over and we're just going to go yeah. to the edge of it and look in and there is a beautiful swan 
So we got this one from Cove um, about a week and a half ago. So she was walking around Cove town, um, almost nearly begging from people from cafes and things. So we took her in just to have an assessment to make sure everything was fine. So she's been treated for parasites now. She's quite happy here now, but it's just quite unusual. So whether it's that she lost her mate and was a bit confused or whether she did just get into the routine of going looking for food up the town rather than staying at the, the shore and people coming to her and feed her. She is extremely placid and quite calm so it's a bit it's a bit unnerving mm, that's very unusual because mm. swans are generally vicious if you've ever had yeah. a, a run in with one I had a look at your video of the pet mm. fox I mean it's like a little dog running along beside her gosh that one, she has a little lead did you see that and she takes the dog out into the, or the fox out into the field <laughs> and has a little lead for it and like and look she was at pains to tell me they actually don't want pets they want animals to go back out into the wild so they are quite concerned about that swan who likes the cafe like there are some lovely cafes in Cove it has to be said so who could blame this one for walking around the cafes in Cove looking for food but the the fox arrived it, it was treated at a veterinary practice it had uh, issues with its eyes um, they observed the fox hoped perhaps the site might return it hasn't so really the fox won't leave and it has its own space it's even taken for walks as I said so just before we met the fox I actually met a bat as well so in here we have I get nervous when you start opening things here now go on what you might say a small creature but actually is one of the Whoa. bigger bat species. Uh, so it's a Leisler's bat. So a lady was uh, remodeling her house, so they were tearing the place apart. They took the seam off one of the doors and this little chap was sitting inside in the seam. So the nice classes, camp, aren't they? How there. can bats have such a bad rep? Yeah, it's just an irrational fear, I think, of people from, you know, stories when people are kids and vampire bats and all this stuff. But we don't have anything like that here. And I think they nearly look like puppies. I actually think they have such a cute little face. They want to be as far away from you as you do them. Just walking around the back here. So we have a large purpose-built enclosure for a resident fox that we have. And um, we got her in as a cub and she was blind. We just um, decided to build her this, this large enclosure here. Um, she would be the first and last fox I would keep. Um, just they are a huge amount of work keeping something full time. Um, I suppose it's just not as easy um, to keep stuff engaged mm-hmm. and relaxed mm-hmm. in an environment that's not kind of natural for them. Mm-hmm. Um, now because she was a cub, uh, she took to us like mm-hmm. as if um, she was you know our child so um she she is very relaxed and she just sleeps most of the day mm-hmm. so in here we have a buzzard so um she's just getting ready for release and she's just learning and practicing to fly again their wingspan is quite impressive it is they're all oh, they're magnificent um and they're they're just so intelligent um so you know they eat a variety of things but what you might see them doing is down on the grassland eating earthworms so they'll just eat pretty much anything they can come across um but she's um no she's doing really well now so we hope to release her this week that's a serious menagerie of <laughs> animals and creatures in Julie's home now apart from getting those animals back on their feet so to speak there's also some really important research being done by the charity well it just so happened and like this really wasn't scripted but while I was there Sam Bailey a conservation ranger with the National Parks and Wildlife Service he just happened to drop in um, they've teamed up with the charity on a project which looks at what happens when rehabilitated birds go back into the wild so his task was to put a tag on the buzzard that we just met there and and that buzzard was almost ready to leave the centre. So the more that we can information we can gather, the more the greater the picture that we have. Um, so and some of the amazing work that's being done here with uh, with the rehabbers, some of these species that are, are very difficult to actually catch in the wild. So things like buzzards, 
We don't know a great deal about buzzards, actually, what they're doing. So you're just holding the buzzard here, Julie. Um, so we're just getting her ringed now and get her back out, um, hopefully on Thursday. Um, quite a big beak and quite big claws. Yeah, exactly. Small birds, uh, beak and claws um, can hurt a bit. Uh, with birds of prey, can hurt an awful lot. So protecting yourself is, is important and protecting the bird from damaging themselves is really important as well. They had a massive decline in, 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 uh, in Ireland due to birds persecution and they have now started to spread mm -hmm. back and now yeah they're going great guns um back back in uh, a lot of parts of ireland now so and we're seeing them yeah i mean they're, they're very much a regular feature of our of uh, uh, of the countryside now so. and underline why it's important we have birds of prey so well actually this uh, buzzard is a great example so buzzard uh, are actually a really good control of something that is getting out of hand so for example their main food source is rabbits and rats they deal with if something is getting too much then predators often are the ones that uh, deal with that i have to say she's quite relaxed now it's slightly unnerving the way she hasn't taken her eyes off yeah well they're, they're they're very much you know sort of in control of what they're doing so they don't have really much of a predator above them so um uh, <laughs> uh they are quite top of the chain but they do, yeah, I mean, they're you know, ready to go whenever she's, you know, when she knows that she can go, she'll go. Mm. So speaking of her time to go, <laughs> she sounds sort of intimidating. I was kind of freaked out, but <laughs> do you know what it was like? It was like being with the Mona Lisa. Every time I walked around the room, the thing had its eyes on me. I was really freaked out. But Top of the food chain. Exactly. Brian. So you, you went along when they set the buzzard free. You got to see that, did you? Yeah, luckily, a day or two later, Julie texted me and said, actually, she said, I'm heading out towards Inishannon. Um, I'm going to set the buzzard free. I'm going to release it back into the wild. Do you want to come along? And I said, of course I do. So we're releasing a buzzard that's been in care for a couple of weeks. Um, so she came in with a very bad concussion, had vision loss in kind of one eye. So it took a couple of weeks for it to come back. And now she is ready to go. So we have her all boxed up here, up on a high perch. Um, and she's, I can hear her moving around inside the box. So I can just see she's inside here. Beautiful feathers. The door is open there now for her to go. Maybe she doesn't want to leave. <laughs> the free B&B all the time, she doesn't want to go. You can see all the crows already starting to act up, so they'll mob her now and make sure that she moves away from the their territory. So um, took her a uh, couple of seconds to yeah, leave the box. Yeah, yeah, they do look there. Yeah. They're more um, kind of concerned with us. So that was brilliant. So she flew off straight away, perfect up high and everything so but like you said we can see now all the crows in those two trees she had it for startled yeah exactly so you'd always see that when you release a bird of prey everyone starts shouting and warning each other that somebody dangerous has come back in the in the territory so it's great to see look and she's she's a magnificent bird so i'm delighted for her so um if she's ever found again hopefully in years and years time if she ever com comes uh, someone comes across her we have the ring number so we'll be able to see how well she did and it was a member of the public who, who found her yeah exactly and they brought her into a vets for assessment first so everything we find is from people the public find to them whether it's in their garden or side of the road or things like that and um, it's all the public that finds them and comes across them for us yeah Ah, that's lovely, Brian. Mm. Off to a new life of killing more rabbits and rats. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't buy it. Now, in order to continue helping species like that buzzard, and of course they're very important, yeah. the charity needs more funding. Yeah, they've really outgrown where they are. I mean, they're essentially out 
the back of Julie's uh, garden. They have quite a large premises built, but obviously they need more space. They're getting some government funding. They need additional funding to expand. So ideally, they're looking for maybe cheap land with a suitable building on it they can use. And the best way to contact through Facebook or Instagram, Wildlife Rescue Cork is the charity name. And as I said, we've just tweeted a video from, from my own account and from the RT Radio 1 account on Instagram and Facebook just now if you want to get a look at the buzzard or the little pet fox. That was Brian O'Connell's report on Today with Claire Byrne. On Morning Ireland, we heard how farmers have been finding it very difficult to source extra labour to help on the farm. With full employment in the country, the available pool of potential workers is very small, so farmers are finding themselves working around the clock. And this can lead to health and safety concerns, as agriculture and consumer affairs correspondent Joe McGrailey reported. Another busy morning on the Smith Farm in Cooraclaven, County Offaly. And the newest calf to be born is finding his feet alongside his mother. He is the latest of around 90 calves born so far this year on the farm. And with another 60 due at any time, day or night, dairy farmers Joe and Karen Smith, like so many others, are on call 24 hours a day. Karen, who sits on the National Council of the ICMSA, says help on the farm is vital, but very hard to find. You're working hard and you could do with the extra help, you know. We took on a Ukrainian chap and um, he stayed about six months with us and he left there just before Christmas, um, before Calvin started. This year we have a very good student and he's with us for 16 weeks, so that will see out our Calvin. I'd love if somebody was here the whole time because I tell you, it's very important to have two people on the farm because accidents happen and you know what, when there's someone there with you, there's a lot of comfort in knowing that. Work on farms may not always be the most glamorous and may not be for everyone, but there is plenty available, according to Colin Donnery, the CEO of Farm Relief Services, a farmer-owned co-op based in Roscray, County Tipperary. Particularly over the last four years, it's become an awful lot more difficult to find, uh, to find workers. Today we have about a thousand people working out on farms, mainly on, on the milking side, but in, in, in general farm work as well. Um, there's severe sort of shortage of workers at the moment. We have, we have about 100 vacancies uh, open today. A lot of family farms are, you know, would have had daughters and sons over the years who would have helped on the farm. A lot of them are heading off to Australia, to Europe, to America. And that sort of help that was there just just isn't there like it, like it used to be. Colin says agriculture as a whole must do more to attract workers and to promote the sector to groups including school leavers and women. So what's on offer to a prospective worker? Pay has increased dramatically in, in, in agriculture over the last four or five years, up, you know, up, upwards 16 euros an hour now. Um, typically, construction workers having to travel a fair distance. They're usually commuting, you know, from the Midlands. A lot of them are heading up to Dublin every day. So if you're working on a farm, you're within probably 10 to 15 miles, you know, uh, and, and farmers can trade really on, the, on that flexibility option, which we've seen after COVID. So many more people are looking for these days. One consequence of the lack of labour around the calving season and the pressure that puts on farmers is a risk of accidents and injuries that can sometimes be fatal. Minister of State with Responsibility for Farm Safety at the Department of Agriculture is TD and farmer Martin Hayden. 
statistically it's proven the busiest time of the year on farms leads to the highest level of fatal incidents um, and there, that's for a variety of reasons longer working hours tiredness but also availability of labour or, or lack of it uh, plays a part in that as well. Now in the middle of this really busy calving season it's really important that farmers whose natural instinct is to protect and to try and save the calf who's just been uh, born but to make sure that they protect themselves as well. Uh, more people have been killed, more farmers have been killed by cows than bulls over the last 10 years. A cow will be naturally protective of her newly born calf and farmers have to be careful they have to plan accordingly and try and avoid putting themselves in that harm's way and never take that the cow that is quiet 11 months of the year and never take it for granted at that time. The labour shortages continue despite the government increasing the number of permits for third country workers to come to Ireland. Last year 500 such permits were taken up but challenges finding accommodation and issues with driver's licences and language have created difficulties. And it's not just the dairy sector facing labour shortages. The sheep and horticulture sectors also find it increasingly difficult to recruit staff at busy times of the year. Karen Smith again. It's, it's a problem and getting harder because nobody really wants to do any more manual work and that's what farming is. There's nothing you can do, you have to do it and that's it. That's the, that's the story at the end of the day. That was County Offaly farmer Karen Smith ending Joe McGrailey's report on Morning Ireland. Playwright and actor Emmett Kerwin was on The Oliver Callan Show. The star of Dublin Old School told us how he's bringing the production back for its 10-year anniversary. 10 years, yeah. It started uh, yeah, in, in Beauty's Cafe and now it's uh, going to the... That was upstairs? It was upstairs, yeah, in the old Beauty's, um, which I think it's back there now. But yeah, looking forward to it. And Remind us of Dublin Old School. What was the what was the idea behind it? How did it come about so in your head? The idea was based around two brothers um, who hadn't seen each other in like three or four years who were estranged and um, one of them is homeless and stumbling and the other brother who is a DJ is kind of careering through Dublin on this wild weekend and then bumps into his brother who he hasn't seen in about three or four years and then they reconnect over the course of the weekend while in the midst of all these parties and raves so it was kind of something that was about I suppose I wanted, this is highfalutin language now, an anthropological look at the <laughs> dance, music and youth culture of Ireland at that particular time, which yeah. was in the post-crash kind of period. And then what it meant about drugs and drug addiction, I suppose, and how kind of things like that affect families, you know. Keeping the sessions going, wasn't that the same? Yeah, sort of? that's it. I say all that now, but it is it is an out-and-out comedy. <laughs> so, you know, you hear a producer in my ear going, tell them it's funny, you the, know. The best uh, comedy which has the truth in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and just that thing of how brothers needle each other and family needles each mm. other and kind of gives each other a hard time and, and say things to each other that, you know, they would never say to anybody else. What did the play say about uh, drugs and drug culture in Dublin at that time? I think because it was written, it's kind of loosely set in the post-crash era. So there's a lot of references to people dancing in the ruins of emptiness or you know things that don't exist anymore. Yeah. So at the time, similar to what's happening now, it's about the attitude towards people who do hard drugs and find themselves homeless and then the people that do what are called party drugs. So there's a difference or a moralising that happens with one drug being okay, socially accepted, and another drug being completely not accepted, you know? So about that hypocrisy that exists to how we treat different addicts. Who do we think is doing the... Um, uh, 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 who has the different attitudes between the two? Uh, the yeah, 
Yeah, I don't know. I think it's middle class drug taking versus. Yeah, but I think that that that's been that kind of class barrier has been completely destroyed, and I think even in the last like fifteen years, apparently, you know what I mean. You see what the kind of attitudes towards drug taking are now, or or drug taking. It's the word I'd use. The types of drugs that are being taken, you know, are, are across the board. You know, mm-hmm. they've. Uh, uh, it's across all of society now. Yeah, all of society, like from you know. All of society I suppose The dance music scene As it was Described in the play In the early 1990s Was about You know um, Ecstasy tablets And stuff like that And how Middle class kids And working class kids Were both taking those drugs And coming together But now you know A lot of drugs And the attitudes towards drugs I think is around cocaine And stuff you know Yeah which used to be The kind of rich people That's it Drug wasn't it But now it's uh, it's just So widespread Um, The great thing That people loved About this play uh, 2014 was that it's uh, it was really Dublin, wasn't it? This yeah. really told the story of true Dublin, what was going on in the aftermath of, of the crash. Is it completely? Is that now a legacy thing? Kind of is. Yeah, is yeah. It really? like a lot of the venues that are mentioned in the play don't exist anymore. Right, the nightclubs. Nightclubs, yeah, and a lot of them you now saying that would have just sprung up as a result of there was an abandoned building, so let's put something here while nobody else wants to use it, give it utility. But yeah, the, the city has completely changed, completely changed. It's kind mm. of now a timepiece or a time capsule, I should say, about Dublin at a particular point in history. Yeah. I, I remember that kind of post-crash. There was lots of independent restaurants. It was, it was an exciting time. Yeah. Despite everyone, you know, the doom and gloom of it being a recession and, and people streaming out of the country and so Somebody, on. Yeah, there was a, one guy said to me, there's loads of holes in the dance floor, you know, of places where people used to be and uh, there was people left behind. So you either had a choice, you stayed and did a DIY thing in terms of what you wanted to make or do or you emigrated, you know, at that time. I suppose because the rents were cheap for the commercial enterprises yeah. and for the people who were obviously going to them and, and that, that has been upended. Entirely. That lasted about five years. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Halcyon days of cheap rent. Yeah, about five. Yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah. And it starts in 2014, doesn't it? Yeah, it kind of starts kicking back up. So um, there's a lot of talk about the state of Irish arts and culture and you you seem to say because it's a timepiece. Yeah. I mean, how bad? You you usually have your finger on the pulse of what's going on in the art scene. I'm a dad now though, Oliver, so <laughs> yeah, okay, right. I'm not hip to the game anymore. Not cool with the kids. Uh, and none nappies. of your uh, age group are... None of my age group. They're all kind of talking about the new Dune is out. You know what I mean? It's in IMAX. That's, that's the most the exciting it's going to get for me. Yeah, I'm going to see that thing and big screen, baby. Um, well, yeah, like... Thousands of venues have closed mm-hmm. in the last 10 years um, because of onerous licensing laws um, for multitude costs, rents, insurance. So the scene has, young people are finding themselves in a changed landscape, not even knowing what the city would have been 10 years ago because they would have been teenagers. So if they're in their 20s now, they're, there, they're yeah. trying to make entertainment for themselves. They're trying to have a youth culture similar to what other generations have had and they, they're not able to do that because those places don't exist and when they try to make their own parties or put their own parties on they find themselves getting shut down you know so the landscape has totally changed and you need a vibrant youth culture if we are to one maintain young people staying here in this country and not having them emigrate by the thousands it's not just about jobs it's not just about accommodation they also have to have um, a cultural identity that they can latch onto. They have to have places to go to, and if you mm. remove all of those cultural spaces where they can be young people safely, um, you're not really you're creating a hostile space for them. I don't think they're creating a hostile space. The hostile space is being created because of inefficacy and and just not getting on with changing licensing laws the way they should do. 
Yeah, the government has said they they're they're planning they to do have, that. They have, and give us yeah. give us the night are the main group that is is campaigning for that. The overhaul of licensing laws, the overhaul of the do uh, they represent times. the clubs and, and dance? They do, yeah, and they're they're a good bunch of people. Sunil Sharp is a is a, is a DJ who has been spearheading that campaign for nearly twenty years now. So that's how long that lobbying group has been. Well, they're not lobbying group, but they have been knocking at the door of the government to do something, take serious action. And if you go to their website, you can see all the great ideas they have, like a nighttime mayor. Um, you know how people get licences and how we use cultural spaces it's not just about alcohol or giving people late licences it's about p- keeping places open till six you know yeah and the Department of Justice they've, um, they've put together some pilot schemes haven't they that seem to have worked very well yeah they have but um, but there, there, there's a the serious overhaul of the Dance Hall Act um, that the is 1935 yeah Dance, Dance Hall Act, Act yeah. which we were just talking about this is about all before. the opening hours and licensing yeah. issues isn't well, it well essentially in the 1930s the, the bishops and uh, the Gaelic League thought that gar- large gatherings of young people was leading to the moral turpitude of the nation and it was yeah. based around things like foreign dancing set dancing anti-jazz campaign um, there were marches against jazz yeah, yeah. Uh, de- uh, down with jazz down with paganism paganism they, they yeah. alluded to both of them so those laws not that you know anything like that is in the statute book but that's the world that influenced that particular set of laws. And they are still the same laws that now govern us and govern licensing and govern our nightlife and govern our culture. So mm-hmm. it's it, they're anachronistic, they're archaic, they need to be completely overhauled. And uh, the government has some ideas. It doesn't go far enough, I don't think, but uh, they could really help out um, a lot of struggling bands, music venues, cultural uh, venues, theatres. You know, we need a vibrant life and we just need to bring ourselves in line with what's happening in Europe. Do the, um, the, the, new, the new laws that would allow nightclubs to be allowed open until 6am, would yeah. that help? I think so, because staggered opening times can only be a good thing um, for the city. But also, it's not just about allowing people to keep getting alcohol, like, you know, four or five in the morning. Uh, these places can be cultural centres that open during the daytime as well yeah, and then can go on. The idea that, you know, we're one of the only cities in Europe that when DJs or bands come here, they're told at half one or two o'clock, get off the stage. That's the stop, you yeah. know, we have, we just, by doing this, we would just be bringing ourselves into line with what our European neighbours have been doing for 50 years. So we're behind. They it. dance all day at the weekends, yeah. don't they? That's in it. The co- in the yes, concert. absolutely. And it's not all just about alcohol. It's just about having a place of culture that people can go to they might want to stay in, you know. Um, the nightclub industry, I mean, it's synonymous with drugs, unfortunately, isn't it? The club mm. scene, the dancing, all of that. I think it used to be. I think this generation are, they drink less. They don't smoke yeah. as much. Yeah. I know people might scoff at that idea, but like, it's, I think that moral panic of the 1990s has never gone away. And I don't think it's... That's that all teenagers will do drugs and destroy their lives. But this is the same arguments they used in the 1930s. You know, so there's always a folk devil that children essentially allow, not children, but, you know, young people allowed to congregate are going to get up to no good. I think they're adults. I think we need to allow them to, if they want to go to dance venues, that, you know, discriminating against a particular form of dance music because there's a fear that something will proliferate there. That's not borne out in evidence, really, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Citizens' Assembly on Drugs and the outcome, you would agree largely with that? I've yeah, and I think... It's to turn it into a health issue rather than a... It should a be a health-led... Um, it should be a health-led issue. All of the things that were put forward have been agreed upon. It's just a case of the government legislating for that. That's, I think that's a long way away. And that was playwright and actor Emmett Kerwin on The Oliver Callan Show today.
Children's swimming lessons are booked out and have long waiting lists in many parts of the country. One of the solutions being looked at by Swim Ireland are pop-up pools, but can they work? Claire Byrne was joined by journalist Mary McCarthy and CEO of Swim Ireland, Sarah Keane, to discuss. Many parents will be very familiar with this uh, topic because Mary, as I said, you've been writing about this, trying to get your children started into swimming lessons. It can be like the Hunger Games, right? It's really, really, really tricky, Claire, And it's a panic, like parents feel a panic because I couldn't get my son in for months and months. I'd go down and every time I went down, I'd try and ring. All the spots would be taken up. Eventually I got him in, right? So he did a term of lessons and I thought he could kind of swim. And then we went last Easter, we went to France and we went swimming in a river and he was paddling. I decided not to go in, it was too cold. But I thought, OK, he's, he's jumped into the pool and swam to the side a million times, he can do it. But actually he jumped in and he totally flailed around. It was awful. So I leaped in after him, fully clothed, got him out. But it really focused my mind then. And it also, it just made me think how unfair it is. It, it's it's like a privileged sport because in some parts of the country, there's there's adequate pools. But I think the, the experience of most parents that I know, unless your your child your child's school has a pool on the premises, and some schools do. Uh, private schools um, it's it's actually really tricky to get the lessons mm-hmm. and if you pay if you have money you can pay extra and go to a gym for instance so for I wrote about this recently and I rang around the country and I found that Minute it was a year to get on the waiting list there's only one pool there in a hotel um, so a friend of mine who lives there she actually paid for a membership and she was able to swim in the hotel but that's you have to be to get to the to pool the you need to, to have the money uh, I rang a pool in Bishopstown Cork they weren't doing any, any assessments um, in Mayo they actually had spaces Crumlin Rat Mines they had no space at the moment Monkstown it's re- improved a lot now in the blue pool in Monkstown because they've changed their booking system so this time last year parents queuing 7am but now there's limited availability but I mean a friend of mine was doing lessons there and she actually paid for lessons throughout the summer even though she wasn't here because she was scared of losing her slot and it, it's I, I just think it's been on the it's been on the like primary school curriculum for 25 years as aquatics but like my school don't do I know it's on schools, the curriculum is it so it's on the primary school curriculum for 25 years right but you can it's it's called aquatics but they don't have to do it so they can get out of it and like I kind of feel like everyone wants the same thing. We all want our children to learn how to swim, but for some reason, it's it's not at the top mm-hmm. of the agenda. And it is close to the top of your agenda, Sarah, is it? Because you're dealing with this a lot from uh, parents, and I'm sure uh, people who are involved in pools and giving the lessons as well. I'm, I'm sure it's frustrating for them to have parents, you know, banging on the door all the time, seeking out these lessons. Yes, from our perspective, a lot of the time Swim Ireland is associated with competitive swimming, high performance, Daniel Whiffen last week. And whilst that's very important to us, our strategy is really about the life skill of swimming, the physical activity of swimming, the safe part of swimming. And just to give you a context, a lot of the pools in this country were built you know, in the 1980s, like they're 30, 40 years old. And there ha- there's no strategy around how do we replace that pool stock. Mm-hmm. Also, most of the pools in this country are actually pub- are not public pools. They're privately owned pools, like hotel pools, mm. which means, therefore, they set the terms as to who can come in and how you come in and how you use them. So you've nothing to do with we that? Won't do- we don't own or run any swimming pools, except for recently we've we've partnered with Dublin City Council and we're running a pool, uh, the Shaw McDermott Street Pool in Dublin 1. And there are space in the swimming lessons in there for parents who are interested. Mm-hmm. And there's parking down there and there's a children's playground nearby and all that sort of stuff to support. Um, but I suppose what we've been trying to do is trying to come up with innovative ways so that we can kind of get opportunities for, for kids to do more swimming. We're working on the medium to long term with the government. They have committed to a national swimming strategy. We understand it'll be launched this year. 
And what at it's the that, moment that's building more pools. Well, is it? that's from our perspective, it's building more pools. At the moment, we have no commitment from government to infrastructure investment. And look, we're delighted to see investment in in uh, cycling lanes and in walking. But swimming is the other priority priority sport and physical activity because it's one you can do obviously the whole life you know your, throughout the whole life like your whole life but so from our perspective what we need is that level of investment we have a facilities model now which will work with the local authority and say look we'll help you decide where the pool should be based on your population based on your schools based on all that sort of stuff so there's something objective to look at around this we need to do swimming pools differently they can't just be in the ground and concrete we need to do steel above the ground more efficient quicker to build we don't have to have every pool that services everybody. We have to have more learn to swim pools that service the, mm. the community. So the pop-up it, pool was our way of getting out yeah, to the community. I want to talk to you about that in a minute. But j- just on the on the fact that the, a lot of the pools are privately owned and that's where parents are having to go, hotels, gyms and so on. It's really, it can be really expensive, particularly if you have more than one child. Do you think while we're waiting for those medium to long solutions that perhaps there should be some sort of state subvention now for parents who are buying these lessons because it's such a critical skill for children to learn. Well, they've tried that in other countries and that ne- not necessarily that hasn't necessarily worked all that well because like there's a variety of reasons for that. I think what we'd like to see is we'd like to see more investment in swimming teachers and support for swimming teachers. One of the biggest challenges the industry faces is the lack of swimming teachers. So there are some pools that are closed at certain periods of the day because they can't find swimming teachers because during COVID swimming pools were closed down for a lot of it yeah. and therefore a lot of people left the industry. We're at a time whereby unemployment is very low and a lot of pe- new people aren't going into the industry. But it is something that you can do as part-time, flexible. It only takes about 50 hours to be qualified as a swimming teacher. You don't have any have to have any background in swimming. A lot of that learning is online and interactive and then obviously a certain amount practically in swimming pools. You can do an assistant start off and then you move to your fully qualified swimming teacher role. So for us a big piece is it's not just about the pools, it's actually about getting swimming teachers, more swimming teachers mm-hmm. for the facilities and around the country. And do you have any oversight when it comes to regulation or qualifications? We qualify all swimming all, teachers, all absolutely. Swimming teachers Education at swimmerland.ie. Any questions go to our Swim Ireland website mm-hmm. so we, we do provide that qualification and it's recognised with Sport Ireland and the government so absolutely we, we can do that and that is definitely one of the big challenges. So Mary coming back to your research then how do they deal with this in the UK are they better at it than we are? You know it's funny in the UK they're not great at all they're actually like they're, 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 the rate of kids who can swim you'll know this area it's actually worse than here but having said that for other rich comparable to other rich wealthy com- countries we don't we don't come anywhere near and I just feel we're an island, we're wealthy if we can't offer, you know, the chance for every child to learn how to swim. Like there's something, I think it should be like an emergency. Like Sarah, you'll know this document, but on the Kildare County Council website, they have a list from 2016 and not many pools, it takes so long to build a pool, for instance, there's one in Lucan being built at the moment, it's taken years. So I can assume this list is still fairly the same. There's 24 out of 100 of the biggest towns in Ireland have no pool. I mean, like the population has exploded. Mm -hmm. So I think it's an emergency situation. Why not ring fence the sugar tax, right? It's 32 million a year. That would build two pools a year. I don't know, Sarah, is this wild? Is this crazy? (laughs) But like if you really did say, right, put the sugar tax, the fizzy drinks into the pool, because at the moment it's just just been swallowed up by the exchequer, you know, God knows where it's going. I think it would just be real tangible. You could have two new pools. Well, you've just given Sarah a negotiation tactic. There you go. (laughs) You know, that's been referenced already with the government. They're not buying that one at the moment. But okay. one of the things I think we would like to see them do is, so if you're one of the biggest organisations like the GAA or the RFU, you have development offers all over the country. We have three in, count, in, in certain um, 
areas whereby the councils have supported us. There should be a swimming, what we call them activation officers, because they can then work with the facilities that are present. They can work with the local authorities. They can work on something in the short term and they can work on something in the medium term. So Mm -hmm. we would like, we we believe every county should have one of those. And then actually we can come together with a plan based on the area, the population, all that sort of stuff for both short term and long term. That person can work with the, whether it's the private hotel or the private facility, they can work with a public facility. They can see about running courses in the local area for swimming teaching. They can look at the, you know, what, what supports are needed because, you know, we want swimming to be accessible for those with disability, with people with cognitive issues as well, older people, younger people. So you do have to have different programs around that. So one of the things we would we have asked for in this strategy is that we would have these individuals out working with with the councils and all around the country mm-hmm. in, in, order in to, every local in every local authority. And um, just some messages coming in. Barry and Cork says it should be a life skill taught to all children. Being able to swim could quite literally save your life, and I think we're all very well aware of that. Uh, another listener says years ago we all learned to swim in the nearest river or canal we wouldn't advise that that's just not safe um, although I know it did happen I agree with you it did happen you need to follow up with progressive lessons to get your gold cert it costs money but it's so worth it I've spent hours at the side of a pool is it necessary to go that far with children so they get their gold cert how long does that take by the way to get to that stage? I'm not sure what the gold cert the individual is talking about but what we it's levels isn't it yeah well yeah and, and, and it can be challenging for parents as well because they feel like they are sitting at the bank a long time. Eight years I've been doing swimming lessons with my children. And swimming is quite technical and it's a different medium. So there's all that involved. But but then they have it for the whole of their life. I was talking to a 60-year-old recently and she said, oh, I'm too old to take up swimming. I said, a lot of people are living now till their 80s. You'd have 20 years left of living. So eight years is not a lot if your child then can swim for the next 80 Mm -hmm. years. Um, But what we say to people is, really, they should be able to swim on their back and on their front for two lengths and thread water for two minutes. And half the, the challenge we have on the other end is kids in swimming programmes are leaving them early. The parents decide they've had enough or the child can swim or maybe they can't afford to do the lessons anymore. Yes. But actually, you want your child to be able to swim not just for safety but also for health and, also for health and fitness and therefore they need to be able to be have form in the water consistently for okay. a period of time. But is there standardised levels across the board? So level five, level six and so on. Is that standardised? Well, what's happening is, you know, if you're a qualified swimming teacher, you can kind of write your own curriculum. Okay. Okay. So a lot of facilities are writing their own curriculum. So we've written recently on a, a new aquatics academy and one of the things we've tried to achieve in that is to introduce kids to different things so a bit of diving a bit of artistic swimming a bit of water polo do the different strokes so that they have more of a kind of a it's more interesting for starters and it's a wider uh, repertoire for them in order ultimately to keep swimming because it is a gateway into other things Mm -hmm. later Um, so we would like to see sort of more pools run that more consistent um, curriculum but to be fair most pools do have levels that they work their way through and yes. parents should be advised every seven or eight weeks how their child is getting on they don't have to move group every seven or eight weeks but one of the problems we have with COVID is that the kids that are five should have then moved up you know within a period of time but because they weren't swimming for, for two years they're now at seven in the same group they would have been at five so there's no room for the five-year-olds to get in and we are still, there was half a million kids who missed out in swimming lessons during COVID. Yeah, it's, it's really so significant. So we are still dealing with that fallout. Yeah, OK. So you um, would like to see pools moving away from that swimming up and down lengths, which is boring for the children and they want to give it up when they're doing that. You know, they know how to swim. They're probably not proficient enough, but they say I'm done now because I'm swimming up and down. Yeah, well, we, ex- yes. And they're doing it at wit, which isn't enough. They actually do need to be able to swim up and down the 25 right. metre or the 20 metre but also we think they should be doing other things in it to have more fun yes. like it ultimately should be fun for kids mm-hmm. um, and you know they're, like we all want to be doing something that's fun and therefore swimming teachers the skilled ones will do a bit of fun at the end whether that's getting them to die for something or throw a ball around or something like that but I suppose what I'd say to parents is first of all 
the waiting lists will continue for a period of time because we are dealing still with a fallout from COVID. There's no doubt about that. So have your child in the water in some shape or form if you can go to a public session. Get them to feel comfortable in the water, blow bubbles in the water. If they can put their head in at all, lie on their back as well as on their front and just have fun. Don't worry about trying to teach them the skills or anything like that. Just get them it's comfortable. Just get them comfortable in the water and try and have them regularly in the water. So they're ready then because okay. you can learn to swim at any age. Let's talk about pop-up pools and how they might be a solution. Have they worked in some places? Well, they've just been incredible. So a pop-up pool is a shipping container effectively. It's 12 by 3. It goes on the back of a lorry and it goes on a like a parking, like a where, where you can park a car. It just sits there. Um, like local authorities have been very supportive because we need, we need some funding from them to bring it and get it set. Um, and then we heat the pool. It's normally really warm. The kids love it because it's so heated. Um, it's normally about 28 to 30 degrees. And also... Um, if you if you're someone with um, health issues, the heat also is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, we we very makeshift, very basic um, changing rooms. But that one of the reasons we felt um, the public would be open to it is because after COVID, we were all used to sort of a bit more of basic outdoors lifestyle. Um, so basically, it sits there normally for about six months. Um, we we run it as I said, the local authority have helped us, um, and we've done it in Fingal. We're doing it in Cavan at the moment. We've done it in Sligo. We've done it in a couple of places around the country. We have three at the moment. We bought one, and the government have helped us buy another two. Um, but you're getting people. We're going to areas generally where there hasn't been much swimming. We try and sit it in a community, like near a community centre or near near schools. So you might, if you've got three or four schools in a local area, the kids can maybe walk to it or get to it closely enough and they're getting swimming lessons. And then what we're trying to do afterwards is have a conversation about, well, what's next now? What's provision? Mm-hmm. We've shown there's demand for it in the area. How do we next go about talking? So we get to the decision makers then and local authorities about well, it. Well, the communities must be devastated when, when it leaves, when it goes back it on is. the back of the, the truck and off it goes. Yeah, it is very challenging. And that's why for us, making sure we have that wider conversation about what's next. And like, you know, there are modular pools can be delivered in two years. You don't have to wait five, seven, ten years for swimming pools to arrive. It's, mm-hmm. And that's we're trying to get people to think differently about how they do swimming and yeah. how they do swimming pools. Mary, do you think the pop-up pool is the answer? By a wide margin, it's better than nothing, right? Of course it is. I mean, like I looked at some of the promotional videos and you had all these groups, these diversity groups saying there's all these kids that didn't know how to swim and now they know how to swim. There was one down in Sligo and there was they have all these summer camps down there that now the kids can do because there's water sports. So there's a lot of people who have moved to Ireland who don't know how to swim as well. That's another thing. I, I do think the cost is a big issue because just it's not a priority. Like if you can't pay your supermarket bill, you won't have the money to pay for lessons. So that's another reason. So I... For private lessons. For private lessons, you know. So, I mean, they are, they are, they're less, they're cheaper when you do them in the public pool, right? Mm-hmm. You pay, in Dublin it's around 110 for a block, right, of a term. That's probably about 11, 12 lessons, is it? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's slightly cheaper than down the country. But, like, it, that still is quite a lot of money. And then, obviously, if you go to a gym, it's a lot more than that. So, anyway, my solution is, and I am, I love swimming. It's such a holistic sport. It's mind and body. It's brilliant. So, three times a week, I'll go to my health club and it's lovely and quiet and I swim around but I feel guilty Claire because I'm like this club should be open to schools so I mean I, w- I would think maybe mandate not every day obviously but maybe two mornings a week all these private um, gyms and you know maybe they have to if there's a primary school in their area they have to actually Well have the state would there. have to pay for that obviously because you're dealing with a private business Yes but it's on the it's on the curriculum. I think it's. I think we need to start taking this seriously. You shouldn't be able to say, "Oh, we'll do Irish dancing instead." It's grand. It's not grand. You got to teach kids how to swim. You know, it's not mm-hmm. fair. And then obviously that feeds into so much other benefits. It's not just the Olympics. It's obesity. It's well-being. It's you know, swimming yeah. is such a great sport. Journalist Mary McCarthy and CEO of Swim Ireland Sarah Keane on today with Claire Byrne. 
Oliver Callan spoke to an up-and-coming snooker star from Cork, 21-year-old Aaron Hill, only last week knocked four-time world champion Mark Selby out of the Welsh Open. Yeah, it was a good feeling, you know. Um, I wasn't out there to be happy sharing a table with him. I wanted to beat him, of course, but yeah. to uh, to beat him was just brilliant, you know. Um, watching him watching him all my life, you know, win, win titles and win world titles, so... Uh, yeah, it took a lot of confidence from us. God, did you were really happy with yourself. That was in the Welsh yeah. Open. Yeah, last week. Last week only. So bring us back, Aaron. I mean, how did you start out in, in snooker? What was your kind of path to snooker? Um, I I started off playing when I was younger. I had a small table at home. And uh, mm. my first day going to a snooker hall, I was 12. My dad brought me down. Um, I was playing football all my life. And um, I got trials for Cork football team, and yeah. I didn't make I didn't make it by only the last couple of spots. Wow! And I was gutted. So uh, my dad brought me down for a game of snooker to cheer me up, and uh, it all started from there. Then football went out the window. <laughs> That's amazing. So you were you were so close to in the trials for Cork, and uh, the yeah. reward to get you over it was to go to snooker, and you kind of find this is the thing that I love. Yeah. Yeah, I fell in love with it from day one, to be honest. Um, that was it. Once I went down the first day, I was down there every day then. And uh, I was soon going down then without my dad and starting to play my mates and uh, started to get better than them and then started playing the good players in the club and then started giving them games. And, uh, yeah, I started playing tournaments then and you know, I was getting results. So I saw the potential from there and uh, it was all eyes, all eyes for snooker then. You were a, a brilliant hurler by all accounts as well. Did you carry any of the skills from that somehow into snooker? Did it give you anything? Um, I suppose you could say my eye-to-ball uh, coordination is good, sure. I suppose. Uh, I'm in sports all my life since I was four. I was in everything, football, hurling, basketball, boxing. Snooker was the last one to come on the scene and that's what I ended up choosing. Uh, it, ca- it came to a stage when I was about... 15 where I had to choose one and uh, snooker it was because I was after making a bit of a name for myself in snooker at the time and I could see the potential so I pursued that and uh, yeah I soon winning European titles then and that, that led me then to the pro game It's going really well It's going exceptionally well it was a good decision to make do you miss any of the other sports at all because it, it comes to a complete um, stop it's snooker 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 yeah. isn't it yeah, I would, to be fair. Um, I love football, you know. I still play football. I play, like, five-a-side and that when I get the chance. Um, but, um, no, it was definitely the right decision to make. You know, I could I could see I could see the potential I had in snooker because I kind of knew all the players around my age category, around Europe, and um, I knew I was up there, like, so... Yeah, when I, I turned pro when I was 18. So, um that mix, mixing it with the big boys at 18 was, was a good feeling like it was a good achievement Cork snooker player Aaron Hill chatting to Oliver Callan today and that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily so from me Louise Herity thanks for listening and take care <laughs>